pray and we'll get started. Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together to study your word, to worship you through our study. And we ask, Lord, right now that our ears and our eyes and our hearts would be opened and tuned towards you, that we would understand more of who you are and more of who we are as a result of that, and that we would do so all for the glory of your kingdom in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, well, when we last left off in Genesis... Uh, Genesis was a series that we did here. It's a book of, of the Bible. It's the first book in the Hebrew Scriptures. But it's also a series that we did here at Spark, and it took us pretty almost near a year. But then we took a break, and we did a few other things. And last week, Kevin introduced the Exodus series for us. But I just wanted to remind us that when we finished Genesis chapter 50, this was what we read. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. If you'll remember, he's in Egypt. And so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So at the end of Genesis, we have the death of Joseph and the burial of Joseph, and it's a distinctly Egyptian scene. So he gets placed in a coffin, there he is embalmed, he's given an Egyptian burial, and that is the end of Genesis. So open up Exodus, then chapter 1, and we're going to today be going through the first 14 verses of Exodus. And it starts this way. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each man with his household they came, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, God and Asher. And all these persons springing forth from the loins of Jacob were 70 persons, but Joseph was in Egypt. Just a quick note on the translation that I'm using tonight. It's from Robert Alter's Five Books of Moses. And uh, he's a fantastic scholar and his translation is really fun to read and it keeps it a little earthy. So rather than saying these are the descendants of Jacob, he'll say, and these were the descendants that sprung forth from the loins, right? Um, so because that's the actual literal Hebrew. And I just wanted to leave you, as we go through today, I thought, let me just use the translation that sort of echoes a little bit more of the little he- literal Hebrew for us um, this afternoon, because then I don't have to explain what I want to say behind some of the English that we also use. Does that make sense? So we're just going to hang tough with Robert Alter for a little bit. So if it's not matching with your NIV, don't worry, don't fret. I still use the NIV too, just tonight we're going to use this translation. The next verse, oh sorry, just really quick, 70 persons. Anyone know right there why this verse has the word 70 in there? Does that mean like literal? They were like and 67, 68, 69, 70. It's more likely that it's a picture. It has to do with um, completeness with um, being fulfilled in all of that commandment. So it's not necessarily that there were only 70 persons, though that could be the case. But oftentimes when the Bible gives you a number, they're giving you a picture with the number because the Bible is very illustrative. And so they're just letting you know it's, it's a good, whole, complete number of people. 
Okay, the next line, and Joseph died and all his brothers with him and all that generation. And this is how the author of Exodus is tying in the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. And it's very clear at this point that we really shouldn't be reading and studying Exodus unless we had read and studied Genesis. We have to understand all of the people that got here into this place. Now, if you're here with us tonight and you've never read Genesis before, no worries. It's only 50 chapters. Just knock that out tonight. You'll be fine. Um, actually, honestly, that would be fun. You don't have to do it in a night. Uh, but you can also just pick up all of our messages online regarding Genesis series and sort of catch up with us that way as well. Because for a couple weeks, we went through like one half of one verse a week. So, you know, you'll be fine if you keep up with the reading with us. And the next verse in Exodus. And the sons of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew very vast, and the land was filled with them. And a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and mightier than we. Just a quick note here. That phrasing's kind of weird, isn't it? Would you say, the people of the sons of Israel? But what the author's telling you is that this is no longer just a family. It's no longer just about one guy whose name was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons. It's that now these people have swelled, these descendants of Jacob slash Israel, he's got two names, these descendants have swelled to a people. And they are now the people of Israel, not just the sons of a guy named Jacob. Does that make sense? So the text is telling us this in this awkward phrasing um, with the Hebrew behind it. Look, the people of the sons of Israel is more numerous and mightier than we. Come, let us be shrewd with them, lest they multiply. And then should war occur, they'll actually join our enemies and fight against us and go up from the land. And then they set over them forced labor foremen, so as to abuse them with their burdens. And they built store cities for Pharaoh, Pithom, and Ramesses. And as they abused them, so did they multiply, and so did they spread... And they, the Egyptians, came to loathe the Israelites. And the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor, and they made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every work in the field, all their crushing work that they worked. I don't know if you can hear that that's the reason why your translators often don't let this remain in awkward English, right? They make it so we can actually read it. But this is the Hebrew, more literal translation. Let me just read it one more time again. The the Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor. They made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every work in the field and all their crushing work that they worked. Sound like work, maybe? Great. All right, that concludes our reading for tonight. So let's start. This message is entitled, Blessing or Target? What is happening in this passage? It's actually quite fascinating. Well, in the beginning, God does this miraculous, amazing creation work. And as he's doing this work, he gives what is now known as the first command in the Bible. Anyone know what the first command in the Bible is? Be fruitful and multiply. 
This is the first command that God gives his people and actually his creation. He actually commands the creation to be fruitful and multiply as well. But he tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And let's read Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 through 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now God's going to echo this command again after the flood and Noah starts things back up again. He tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And even later on in Genesis chapter 35, when he's blessing Jacob slash Israel, God says to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. So when the writer of Exodus is speaking, the writer uses that same phrasing to tell us what Israel is doing in Egypt. They are being fruitful and they're multiplying and they grew, grow very vast and the land's filled with them. So they are doing the thing that God has commanded them and told them to do. And that there's this one really interesting thing that the writer of Exodus sticks in there. He sticks in this word, or she, no, it's he, probably. Uh, he sticks in the word swarmed. Where does that come from? It also comes from Genesis. Let the land produce living creatures, <clears throat> livestock, creeping things, and wild animals of every kind. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So the author of Exodus uses this kind of word to describe what Israel is doing in Egypt. He actually uses a word that's not applied to people in the creation narrative, but it's applied to the creation itself, to these like sort of swarming creatures. And when I think of the word swarm, I think of this, right? It's not, I don't want a swarm. Anybody want a swarm? I trust, trust me, you do not, you want a swarm? I do not want a swarm. And this last summer, I was out on my deck with our daughter, and it was really nice outside, and I thought, you know, I'm going to stay here for a while. So I went back into my house for uh, momentarily to pick up a couple toys to take back out with her, and as I turned and looked at the place glass window, there was a swarm of bees. Within seconds, and I thought, dear God, right? And I freaked out and shouted for Kevin and was like, we have an emergency. We need to call somebody right away. And they're swarming and swarming. And then they land in our tree and start to go into the hollow of the tree. And we think like a, a hive had split, it had gotten too big and they were looking for another place. But within seconds, I was near outside with at that point, like a four month old baby almost in a swarm. Trust me, you don't want to be in a swarm, right? If you're on the receiving end of the swarm, now the bees might be very happy being in a swarm, right? That's how they live. But, but I, I think it's interesting that the author says they were fruitful and they multiply and they swarmed and the Egyptians began to loathe the Israelites. Because you tend to loathe a swarm. So there's this really interesting thing happening here in Exodus chapter 1. God's promises are coming to pass, right? His people are being obedient to their blessing, to the command to be fruitful and multiply. And God has promised that they would become a great and mighty and vast nation. So in Genesis chapter 18, God says, Abraham, you'll surely be a great and mighty nation. And then the same Hebrew word is used in this passage. The sons of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew very vast, a great mighty nation. It's that same phrasing there. 
So God's promises are coming to pass. He'd pulled Abraham out. He said, Abraham, look at the sky, all of the stars, so shall your offspring be. You will be fruitful and you'll multiply. And then weirdly, I know, funny, uh, like sort of Star Wars themed imagery here. Um, Know for certain your descendants will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Wouldn't you be like, uh, pause. I was down with that whole fruitful and multiply thing and a vast and mighty nation. I'm glad that I will be rich and rewarded, but can we just pause on that? And why the enslavement for 400 years? Can I back that truck up? But apparently Abraham was just like, all right, well, I got that blessing, so I'm good. Um, And then God ends with, you know, but I'll certainly punish the nation they serve, and afterward they'll leave with many possessions. As for you, you're going to die in peace and at a good old age. He's like, sweet, all right, got that, great. So God, in this first chapter of Exodus, we're finding out that the people have been obedient to the call to fruitful and multiply. They have done so with God's blessing. That God's promises that he made to Abraham and to the other fathers that we all read about in Genesis, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, slash Israel, are starting to come to pass. That people are fruitful and multiplied, and that all of this is happening. They're becoming a great and mighty and vast nation. So we should expect that everything would be good. And oftentimes in the Christian community, we talk about our lives this way, don't we? I'm going to obey God, because if I obey God, all these beautiful, wonderful things are happening. And maybe a little bit like Abraham, we edit out that verse that's like, oh, and by the way, there might be like, you know, 400 years of enslavement in a land not your own. And so we talk about this this way in the church, and we'll talk about things like, you know, obedience always brings blessings. Always. Like, um, okay, uh, sure. Um, obedience, look at this, equals blessing. Like, if you're obeying, wow. And, and this is true, right? If we read the, when we get to Deuteronomy in 10 years, when we read the end of Deuteronomy, and we're reading through, Moses will set before, God will set before the Israelites blessing and curses, and he'll say, obey me in your life, you'll have these blessings, and if you disobey, you'll have death. But I just want to point out that sometimes, I think at least Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is saying it doesn't always work that way. Because not everyone lived 400 years, right? They didn't all live and see the end of that enslavement. Some people died in Egypt, let's be honest, most people died in Egypt waiting and wondering where the promises of God were going to be. So when I go online and I just search really quick, obedience brings blessing, I'm like, wow, look at this. This doesn't look like an, I don't know, like an Oprah series. A new year for a new you. You know, obedience brings blessing. And how to receive God's blessings. We've got like this simple formula, A plus B equals C. Let's do that, no problem. Obedience is the God, obedience to God is the key to freedom. Obedience to God is the key to freedom, somebody said online. I'm like, uh, I think the Israelites would have an issue with that. I'm obeying God, and I do not have a key to freedom. Um, and, you know, this is like this nice circle of blessings. It's an actual flow chart. helps you do the math to figure out. And then this one, you know, I love. It's like, I, I am going to be obedient, and I want my blessing. Like, this is the expectation. Haven't you ever thought this? Haven't you ever argued with God? But God, I did everything right. I did it the way you wanted me to do. And that person over there is ridiculous. And they were so horrible and nasty, but I did it all right. And I expect the blessing. And where is my blessing? And why isn't it happening? And here we have even this wonderful flowchart I loved. Increased obedience equals increased blessings equals increased happiness and love for the Lord. Amen. (laughs) 
Just increase your obedience, you guys. Come on. It's not that hard. There's a pie. There's like a flow chart for you. I mean, how difficult can this be? Just increase your obedience. You will have immediately, it's a math issue, increased blessings just right away. And, and not only joy, happy. You're going to be like happy meal happy, right? Like you're going to get the toy and all the great stuff, happy meal happy. This is oftentimes how we treat the Christian life. And I feel like maybe pastors have told us this. Like they're trying to, you know, make this deal with us. And spiritual leaders, like, you know, or even self-help, right? You just think positive. What you put out comes back, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And you think, that doesn't always, that's not always the case, is it? Anybody? You think I'm going to preach, white girl preach. Okay, great. So... <laughs> Their obedience and God's blessings and promises actually have made them a target. And isn't that a flip? Because I wouldn't presume that by obeying God I would become a target. Or that God's promises to me being fulfilled in my very midst would make me a target. But you have to see things from Pharaoh's point of view. They're a swarm and yeah, that's a blessing. They're being blessed and they're multiplying and all they're becoming great and mighty and vast. But from Pharaoh's point of view, he's like, this is not a blessing. These people can come up against us. They might join our enemies. They're going to leave our land. We want them to stay. We like this free labor. Let's have these people stay. And I think this is part of the key, right? That oftentimes when we're looking through text, when we're looking through our life, that point of view makes all the difference in the world. That if you are standing on the island and you see the boat and you've been straining, you're like, boat! And the guy who's straining the boat's like, land, right? And you're just so thrilled that you found the thing you're looking for, but neither is exactly how it's supposed to be. Oftentimes, when we are looking at our lives, we sit down and we say, God, I have obeyed you. I've done all these wonderful things. Bless me, bless me. And other people see that blessing, and instead of going, wow, how wonderful, they say, uh, I don't like you. And now I'm going to make life really difficult for you. And your math is not going to work out. So this t-shirt that's available, I'm too blessed to be stressed. I don't think there's any Israelite who would have worn that t-shirt in that 400-year period. I'm too blessed to be stressed, you guys. Yeah, no, sure, terrible, you know, horrible enslavement and, and terrible abuse. But I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be a blessing. No, really? Any Egyptian going to say that while they're being beat down and having to build these storehouses for Pithom and Ramses? Any, any Israelite going to say that of the Egyptians while they're being beat down? Not one, right? Not one's going to be like, I'm so glad that Abraham just skipped over that entire conversation with God. Abraham, I would be like, dude, Abe, you argued with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, do you think you could have argued for the 400 years? Could you cut that down to like, I don't know, 200? One, let's say, 100 years. How, why not? Because this, this is the promise in Genesis 12. I will bless you, Abraham, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This is part of the story. So you guys, you know, just keep calm. You're blessed. It's fine. Just keep calm. Understand that it's all going to work out fine, right? Isn't that just true in your life? It all works out fine. The math is great. You obeyed God. You got your blessing. You took it to the bank. You turned it in. You got your reward back. It's all great. It's all working. The math is great, right? No. This isn't life all the time. Now, if that's worked for you, praise God. You should leave because we don't like you. 
because it hasn't worked for the rest of us, right? So we might just be a little bitter. We're glad that God has blessed the socks off you and it's all just worked out okay. That from the day you chose Jesus, you have never known a day alone and it's just all wonderful and it's just you just wake up with the joy of the Lord every morning. You read your Bible like a good Christian. You pray like a good Christian and it all just works out perfect for you. You get every raise you want. You've gotten every promotion. You've got the hot spouse and whatever uh, package you wanted them in. You've got the 2.4 kids that look exactly the way you've always wanted them to look, you know, and everything's worked out exactly as you planned. If you're that person, that's fantastic. Um, There's the door. Don't talk to us afterwards in the coffee hour. We're not interested in your cute story because everybody else in here is like, it's not worked out quite that way. And sometimes we start to feel like there's a little bit of a bait and switch. Because I, anybody, have you ever wondered, am I the only person that this Christian life doesn't work out like math for? Am I the only one in the room? Because, and then you go to small group and you're like, wow, you know, I had a really difficult week. And like, you know, I'm just, I'm just so blessed. <laughs> and you feel like, never mind, I can't talk to you anymore. There's nothing I have. Oh, yeah, no, I'm blessed too. I mean, and, and Christians will qualify it all. Like, well, I had this really horrible week and 16 terrible things happening. But, but you know, I know God's in charge. And I know it's just going to be okay in the end. I mean, that's great. If you're coming from that place of faith, that's fantastic. But it's also okay to say, I don't know what's happening. I really didn't expect this to occur. Actually, life's been fairly disappointing, and I didn't plan for this. Now, I'm trusting that God's in it, and I'm trusting that he's in the middle of it, and I'm trusting that ultimately his promises will be true, but it's year 150, and I'm still stuck in Egypt. And I might not live another 250. 50 years to make it to the end. And I'm glad you will. That's great. But I might get stuck. And if you're just wondering if I'm at all correct, I don't know, read your New Testament. Because all of the disciples meet untimely or discouraging deaths. Paul himself is saying, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been bit by snakes, I've been starving, I've been imprisoned. I mean, this is the Christian life, right? Could you imagine this infomercial late at night, right? The pastor's going to get up and go, all right, for 1995, we've got the deal for you. Accept Jesus, and you can be like Paul. And people are like, I, how, what was, okay, so he wrote a whole bunch of the New Testament, and that's really fascinating. But he also was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned and had... And he had joy in the Lord, and I believe that's possible. I'm just saying, sometimes this idea that if we just work hard enough or we do the right thing, that everything will turn out the way we want it, that isn't always true. No matter how much our American oomph makes us feel like that should be true. So what do we do when we're stuck in year 200 of being enslaved? What do we do when we have been obedient, when we have followed God's commands, and we've done the very things that he's asking us to do, or we've tried to do the very things that he's asking us to do, and we've pursued them, but it's not happening? What if you're amongst us, and you've said, I want to be fruitful and multiply, but that's not happening, or it's not possible, or I haven't met Mr. or Mrs. Wright yet, or, or it's just not It's just not happening. And I want to follow God. I mean, there's just moments where what do we do when we're in the midst of this? You've done everything right, and it's not working out. God's going to fulfill his promises, but you're in the middle of one of the promises, which was you'll be enslaved for 400 years. What do we do? Should we just abandon obedience? Should we just go, it's not working. I'm just going to abandon it. 
I've tried to do this thing. I've tried to do this fruitful multiply thing. It's not working. That's it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I've tried to be part of a community, and it didn't work, so I'm not going to do it anymore. I've tried to share my faith with my coworkers, and it didn't work, so I'm not going to do it anymore. I tried to love my neighbor, and my neighbor's a jerk, so I'm not going to do that anymore. I've tried to love my enemy because I just found that out, and that didn't work, so I'm not going to do it. I mean, do we just say, that's it, I'm out? Well, the Israelites do this really amazing thing. They double down. When they are obeying God, but it's not producing exactly what they're hoping for it to produce. And instead, as the Egyptians start to oppress them as a result of being fruitful and multiplying, the Israelites double down. And as the Egyptians abused them, so did the Israelites multiply. And so did they spread. And the Egyptians came to loathe the Israelites. And I love that there's this picture that the very thing that's made them the target, they're going to keep doing that. Because it's the obedience to God. It's not going to make their life easier at all. But they're going to just keep on. And in my own life, I've had moments like this where I've thought, I don't know what to do. The thing that I'm trying to do isn't working. I've been trying to obey. Or the thing that I've been doing has now made me a target. And it's kind of making my life a little challenging and a little difficult. I spoke up at work or I did this other thing, this other context. And now it's a target. What do I do? Do I just not obey anymore? I was a kid in junior high, and there was another kid getting bullied out on the P.E. playground. And I was two years younger in my junior high. It was 7th, 8th, ninth grade. So there's like dog years difference, right, between a 7th grader and a ninth grader, freshman in high school. And it was freshman boys that were abusing this other boy. And I was sitting in the row on my number. You know how you sit on the number for P.E. class? I was sitting in the row on my number, and we weren't supposed to get up and move. And I saw this kid getting picked on. And so I jumped up because... I just am a weird kid. And so I jumped up and I ran over and sobbing. I was so upset. And I stood between this kid and the freshmen in high school were picking on him. And I was like, stop it, just stop it. I was trying to maintain control. Have you ever had that where you're like, I want to be in control, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, it's really scary and you're so huge. And, you know, and, and um, the kid had special needs and I just was so upset and I was going to get in trouble. Like they were calling me back thing. And I was like, stop it, stop it, stop it. And then um, the kid I was trying to protect was like, could you stop, please? Like I got this. <laughs> And so I thought, oh, shoot. So should I not obey the command to try to go and help when people are in trouble because maybe that person doesn't want the help of a pipsqueak little girl running over to probably a little bit the way I felt when I was skiing down the slopes and it was moguls and it was really difficult and I like kept falling, kept falling, and like a four-year-old shushed up to me and asked me if I wanted any help. You know, that moment where you're like, no, thank you. Please keep shushing. I will eventually make it down and never come on this chairlift again. So, you know, those moments. But instead, I was like, you know, okay, I learned something. I should probably ask if somebody needs help before I try to run into help. Also, those boys are very tall. I probably shouldn't talk to them ever again. And I'm not going to not do that. I'm going to double down. The next time I see somebody needing help, I'm still going to go help. Doesn't mean I always do that. Just, it's, just, it's what I'm trying to do. And this passage in, chapter, in John chapter 6 is what this reminds me of. Jesus has just given the disciples a very difficult teaching, and a whole bunch of them leave. And then he asks the twelve, so do you not want to leave me too? And Simon Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. He doesn't say, oh, that teaching's easy, we got that. That teaching's weird. You can go and read it. It's a weird teaching. And I have a friend who would like, I'd tap out right then. I'd be like, I'm out. That's too weird for me, Jesus. But instead, the disciples doubled down. 
We know what we know. We know you're the Holy One of God. We're going to stick with you. We're going to obey. It's going to be difficult. It's going to make us targets, but we're here. And sometimes when we're in these dark moments, the only thing we can say to God, to our friends, to others is, well, but where am I going to go? This is all I've got, Jesus. I'm confused. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why I'm obeying you and I'm trying to do everything right and it's still not working or it's producing a negative result where I'm getting targeted. I don't understand, God, but all I know to do is to keep trying to follow you and I'm going to double down. So if you find yourself in the middle of this, in the midst of this in your life, it's okay. Find a community that's going to come alongside you and go, it's all right to say you've had a bad day. It's all right to say that things are tough. It's all right to say that the math isn't adding up today for you. And find a community that'll come around you and help you double down. Now, what if you're in the midst of that and the cost just keeps getting higher and higher and higher? So back to this passage. The Egyptians put the Israelites to work at crushing labor. They made their lives bitter with hard work, with mortar and bricks and every work in the field, all their crushing work that they worked. And the Hebrew here for the word crushing labor is an adverbial form derived from a root meaning to break into pieces or to pulverize. So the Egyptians are looking at the Israelites, and they're not just saying, we're going to make life a little difficult for you, a little, a little hard. They're saying, we are going to crush you. We're going to pulverize you into tiny little pieces. We're going to make it impossible for you to carry on. And we're going to do this with ruthlessness, with massive bitterness into your life. We're just going to do everything we can to make it as difficult as possible. What do you do when that's happening? Don't let the trial, the persons, pulverize us. Don't let it disunify us, we stay unified. There's strength. Remember back to that phrase, the people of the sons of Israel. This isn't a family anymore. It's not a weird reunion in the back. It is a people. It is God's people. It is the people that God has covenanted and made covenantal promises with, and they are going to stay unified. So as Egypt pushes in and says, we're going to pulverize, we're going to fracture, we're going to shatter with hard work, with crushing work, with the crushing hard work that you're going to have to work, 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 work. With that type of action, in that, stay unified. Now, we can talk about how this means that as a church, we need to stay unified. That if something comes up against us as people, we need to stay unified. Um, But I would say it's even deeper than that. It's in marriages. It's in families. When the very tough things come, how do we stay unified when everything is working to break us apart? What do you do in those moments when you're looking at the person that you've pledged to love for the rest of your days and you're thinking, the rest of my days, really? How long is that going to be? Not Kevin, just other people I know. It's not my husband. Um, And you sit there in those moments and you think, how is this going to work? And it's so easy to try to grab onto the thing that's shattering you, to break you apart because it's easier to be fractured. It's easier to go away to your own corner and go, but I just want to lick my wounds and I want to know that I'm right even though I don't know that I'm right. And I want to know that they're wrong even though I'm not sure that they're wrong. But what if in those moments we said, okay, this crushing hard work, this thing that's coming at me, this is the moment where I'm going to be a people with my people. And I'm going to reject that pulverization. And this happens to us when we go to work. 
right? It's not just in our own families. It's within our very self. We go to work, we're like, I'm going to be a great Christian today. And then we get there, and then there's this terrible person, and there's a difficult boss, and I'm just going to be quiet. And I'm just going to cut off that part of myself that's trying to love others. I'm just going to try to sit down, put my nose down, do my work, because Pharaoh over there is a big jerk. I mean, my boss. I mean, Pharaoh, they're confusing sometimes. Um, And you sit there in those moments, what do you do? How do you prevent the disunification of self? How do you make it so that you're not one person at work and another person when you go home? Which, by the way, anyone who's ever tried this knows that it doesn't work. And you end up becoming the same person at home that you were at work, oftentimes. That stuff carries over. And we deal with the split personality where we've got this good side of ourselves and this bad side of ourselves. Maybe it only happens for you when you get on the 101. Maybe it only happens for you when you are driving on the 101 and when you accidentally cut somebody off, you're like, oh, so sorry, and there's tons of grace that you asked for. But when the other, when somebody cuts you off, you're like, that's terrible. Wish the cops were here right now to get you, right? You want the grace? We want the grace. Yes. What are these split personalities? How do we find that when we're in those crushing, pulverizing moments, how do we avoid division of self? Because God's number one commandment, not the first commandment he gives, but the number one commandment he gives in Deuteronomy that Jesus says is the number one commandment in Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And in in the Gospels it says, and mind and strength. And the word that I love here is the word all. There is no fracturing. There's no work self, home self. There's no, well, I'll do this because nobody's watching right now and apparently Jesus can't see in the dark. And um, over here, I'll be this person at church. And I'll be this person when I'm with this family member and I'm going to be this person over here. And we try to divide and fracture ourselves. We try to say, well, but that's just this one thing that I do with my friends or it's just the type of music that I want to listen to. And we do all this division. It's the type of, I'm going to, I'm going to have salty language at work, but I'm not going to have salty language at home and at church. At church, I'm going to be like, oh, dear Jesus, I love you so much. And I'm never, I had a girlfriend, she said, you know, I don't want to be a hypocrite, so that's why I cuss at church. I was like, okay, that's a, that's a choice. Um, She's a very dear friend. I loved that. I thought it was hilarious. Um, so in any event, we, taught, we do all these things to sort of fracture ourselves up, to pulverize ourselves, and maybe there's something here about trying to find that unity in ourselves, to be a whole person, to be united in who we are, and to also be united as a people together. So if you're coming up against this stuff, what do you do? You double down. You still keep with Jesus. Still follow And then we try to not fall into the pulverization, the disunity. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to take the long view. The long view says that God has a giant plan. And that it's not just about you and me. It's not about what's only happening to me right now. I'm not the only person in the world that's had a bad day, that's had a challenging situation, that didn't have things go the way they'd always pictured, that the scrapbook didn't turn out the way they wanted, and there's several pages that I want to rip out, right? Oh, you know, have you ever sat down with scrapbook and said, oh, don't look at that page? No, you haven't. You always put the good pictures there, but our real-life scrapbooks, but there's like whole chapters that were like, and flip, 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 flip. And so then... I came back to the Lord, and it was beautiful, right? And he was like, let's just talk about that all day long. Just talk about the time when I had it all together. And I don't want to talk about the time that's difficult. You see, when we look at the long view, we realize that God did make a promise to Abraham that, yes, the people would be enslaved, but part of that promise is that they will also be set free. 
and that there will come a day when there will be justice that will be done. There will come a day when those obediences and those blessings all pay out in the way we expected them to pay out. There's a long view of history, the long arch of what God is doing in this universe, the long view of the promises that God is giving Abraham. Now, Abraham, when he died, he had just a handful of sons and some daughters. He had a second marriage with Keturah. I don't know if you remember after Sarai. He doesn't have the multiple descendants that fill the stars that they do today. He has to have the long view. When God starts creation in Genesis, and he sets up a garden where everything's supposed to be exactly as it is, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and then it goes sideways, and it's terrible, God decides to have a long view. And if you read your text, you can see the long view if you read through and you get all the way to Revelation. There's a long view. Where in the end, in Revelation, we see all things are set to right. There's no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. Isaiah talks about no longer will an infant live but a few days. What a wonderful blessing. That God has recognized that yes, things are sideways, but there's a long view, there's a long reach of what God is trying to do here. And in the meantime, here's my last note of what to do. Avoid pithy, easy answers. Because sometimes you're the poor sap stuck in the middle of the 400 years of oppression. And you can have the long view, but you're still the poor sap stuck in the middle. And if you're talking to the poor sap, that poor sap does not need the t-shirt. They don't need the too blessed to be stressed t-shirt. They don't need the, but you're blessed to be a blessing. They don't need that. That's not helpful. You are now not a blessing if you say that. And if you're the one stuck in the middle, be grace-filled towards the people that haven't had to live in Egypt yet. Because they are in a beautiful, wonderful place where the math still works and where the things are working out. And that, hey, isn't that where we'd all like to live? That's a beautiful place to live. And so just generously and kindly reach out and help them understand what it's like to be stuck in Egypt. You're still obedient. You still love God. You're doubling down. But it's still hard, and there's still crushing days. But Jesus is there. Your community can be there. And we promise not to buy you a t-shirt. <laughs> Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which you speak to us. Thank you for the way in which you include stories in the Bible that do wonderful damage to our bad theology. Thank you, Lord, that you have been invested in the long arch of history, not just in this world, but also in our lives. And would you give each one of us tonight a little piece, a little taste of that long view? And if we're stuck in Egypt, would you please give us a people around us that will be stuck with us? As we double down, we seek to love and serve you more with everything we've got, but we need somebody to give us some water and a kind word and some hope. Jesus, thank you for being the one that brings ultimate hope. Thank you for being that living water, and thank you for being that shade. Amen.